following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it's good to be together on this fourth Sunday of Advent, and we want to welcome each of you, and especially those watching on the live stream, we want to especially welcome you. And if you're a visitor, we're glad you're joining us and watching, and we invite you to come join us in person sometime as well. Would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Father in heaven, we're gathered together this morning, not just to gather, but to get a word from you. So come now in the power of the Holy Spirit to change and transform our hearts so that we would see Jesus more clearly, that we would love him more fully. For those who need a word of hope and of encouragement this morning, give that to them through the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do any of you have a bucket list or know what a bucket list is? Probably you know what a bucket list is. It was popularized, that phrase, but a movie of the same name. And a bucket list is essentially the things you want to do before you kick the bucket, before you die. It could be things like going to a major sports event. I want to go to the Super Bowl at least one time in my life or Indy 500 or the Masters Tournament or maybe learning a new hobby or traveling around the world or running a marathon or climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Or it could be things like reading the Bible cover to cover in a year or going on a missions trip or surprising others with unusual generosity. Uh, a bucket list tries to capture this feeling that we have, which is our time is running short. And we want to maximize all the time that we have before we die or before we lose our health or our capacities and we can't do anything else. This morning in our passage, we get to see the one and only thing that was on Simeon's bucket list. He wanted to look upon the Messiah of God. He wanted to get a glimpse of God's salvation. And not only did Simeon get to see him, but he got to hold him. Now, the bucket list, though, is only half the equation. If, if you don't accomplish anything on your bucket list, nothing bad happens. Those are just things you want to do, and if you don't get to them, th there's no consequences. But there's the other half of the equation, which is the things you need to do. Not the things you want to do, but the things you need to do before you die. And what would be those things? Well, some people would say, you got to make a will. Or you got to update the beneficiaries in your financial accounts. Or you need to reconcile conflict with family or friends that you've had an argument with, that you've had a falling out with. And yet what we get this morning in Simeon's example is that only really one thing is needed. Things you must do before you die, which is we need to see Jesus in all of his splendor and glory. I want to call us to see and savor the salvation of God revealed in the Savior. That good news of great joy that is for all the peoples, has come. 
Now, the main point of our passage is this, that Jesus has come to usher in a new and glorious work of salvation. Jesus has come in to do a new and glorious work of salvation, and he does it in two particular ways. He does it by fulfilling the law and by shining a light for the Gentiles. And so we're going to look at those two things this morning. But Jesus comes into the world and everything changes at that moment about how man and God relate to one another. Everything fundamentally changes forever. Like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz when she says, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Once Jesus comes, all of life changes forever. And my aim for us this morning is that we would have fresh appreciation for Jesus. And let me try to illustrate it this way. I I didn't really appreciate my parents for all the work that they put in in raising me until I became a parent. Uh, Fresh appreciation welled up in my heart once I saw all the difficult things that parents have to do. I'll give you one example. This came into such stark clarity for me when I used something called a manual baby nasal aspirator. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's also called a snot sucker. Someone made a gadget where you can put one end in your mouth and then your little crying infant when they're sick and all stuffed up and they can't get any of that stuff out and so you suck it out manually. It's really gross. And in that moment, my heart realized only the love of a mother or father would do something this disgusting. And, and so my appreciation for my parents, who did all sorts of gross things for me, welled up with greater appreciation. And this morning, while many of us appreciate Jesus, we think, yes, he's done much for us. I want to call us to see the deep and profound giving love of the Father and the sacrifice of the Son so that in your heart wells up with new waves, new fountains of appreciation for what Jesus has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. So in Luke, we've seen all of these different testimonies of people who encountered Jesus. John leaps for joy. Elizabeth calls him Lord. Mary praises God. The shepherds come and worship. And this morning we get two more witnesses in Simeon and Anna. And I want to break our passage up into three sections. First, we have two law-abiding parents in Joseph and Mary. We're going to look at verses 21 to 24. And then we get two spirit-inspired witnesses in Simeon and Anna. And then I want to conclude with the one Savior of the world. And in that section, we're going to look at Simeon's words of prophecy and his words to Mary as well. I'm going to read verses 21 to 24 as we look at these two law-abiding parents. And I want you to notice how many times the word law is repeated. So, verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now keep your eyes in the Bible and scan down with me to verse 27. 
And verse 27 says, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Again, keep your eyes in the Bible and look with me all the way to verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Okay. Five different times, Luke makes a point to say Mary and Joseph followed the law. They are law-abiding. Why? Because he wants to show us that Mary and Joseph are faithful, law-abiding Jews that followed the Old Testament regarding three really important ceremonies. First, circumcision Second, purification. Third, the presentation of the firstborn. And we're going to look at each of these and then explain why all of this matters. The first is circumcision. Shows up in verse 21. It was commanded by God to Moses in Genesis 17, verses 11 and 12. And Jesus received the sign of the covenant that would have been received by every single Jew, every single male Israelite. Jesus is a true child of Abraham, sealed in blood and shares in the same sign as all of his people. Now, this happened on the eighth day. After 40 days total from his birth, Mary and Joseph go up to the temple, and this is to observe the law of purification. This is described in Leviticus 12, verses 1 to 8. I'm not going to read it, but a woman who gave birth to a son would be ceremonially unclean for 33 additional days after the the initial seven days, and on the eighth day he was circumcised. So, 40 days in total, and they were required to bring a sacrifice. And they were to bring a one-year-old lamb to the temple in order to sacrifice it. This is the law of purification. But Luke makes a point to tell us that Mary and Joseph didn't bring a one-year-old lamb. They brought two turtle doves or two pigeons, which was sort of the escape clause, which if you can't afford a lamb, you can bring two turtle doves, which would have been for the poor. And so again, we're highlighting, Luke's highlighting for us that Mary and Joseph are poor, and Jesus is born into humble circumstances. And then this is a little bit conflated altogether in verses 21 to 24, but there's also the presentation or the dedication of the firstborn. This is outlined in Exodus 13.2. Let me read it. Exodus 13.2 says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So Mary and Joseph follow each of these ceremonies and laws, bring Jesus to be presented and dedicated before the Lord. The point that Luke is making is that Mary and Joseph are law-abiding parents. But why does that matter? It matters because Jesus comes into the world not only as a sacrifice for our sins, but he was born under the law. This is really important. Jesus came in to fulfill the law, and so he had to be born under the law so that Jesus would live a perfect life. And so what we receive when Jesus dies for us on the cross, not only does he take our sins from us, but what does he give us? His righteousness. We get Jesus' perfect righteous life. His imputed righteousness is given to us, and so it's really important for Luke to highlight Jesus was born under the law. He fulfilled the law. There was nothing that he didn't keep about the law. Romans 5.19 says, 
For as by the one man's disobedience, this is Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is Jesus. We are made righteous. The reason this is good news of great joy for all the people is not just because your sins are forgiven, because you sin after that. What do you do about the sins you continue to do? Or the life of brokenness you continue to live? Well, we get the righteousness of Christ given to us. And we also get the Spirit, which we'll talk about in just a moment. We are as much saved by Christ's death as we are by his perfect, righteous life. Galatians says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, and then born under the law. To do what? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Very simply, we don't get punishment that we rightly deserve because Jesus Jesus took it for us. But then we get what we don't deserve, which is Jesus' righteousness given to us. So when Romans 8.1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why aren't we condemned? Because when God looks down on us, he sees those who are made righteous by the perfect life of Christ, who fulfilled the law, born under the law, fulfilled the law perfectly in his life, and that righteousness is given to us. So Mary and Joseph raised their son according to the law. Now, that brings us to these two spirit-inspired witnesses in Simeon and Anna. You can see that in verses 25 and 26. We don't know much about Simeon. He doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible, but we're told that he's righteous and devout. So he's a godly saint. He's pious and faithful. And it says that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, meaning that he's waiting for God's deliverance to come. And he's also revealed, it was revealed to him, we see that in verse 26, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he had received revelation from God that he would be able to look upon the Christ. What we can also notice about Simeon is that he's probably old. It's not explicit in the text, but we see that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. That in verse 26. And then in verse 29, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. So likely, this is the words of an old man who is ready to go and yet wants this one final thing. But what's significant about Simeon is that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. We see this three times in verse 25, in verse 26, and then in verse 27. Simeon is the sixth person in the birth narratives that is filled with the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to why that is later. But it's right now what we can notice is that the Holy Spirit is poured out in greater measure. That there's indwelling by the Spirit and all of these people to point to that something different is taking place in the person and work of Jesus. Now, there was a prophetess, Anna. We can see that in verses 36 to 38. And our second witness is also old, which is really important to Luke here. And scholars aren't entirely sure of her age because you could read it both ways, that either she was lived, got married, was married for seven years, and then remained a widow for the next 84 years, or that up to this point she has been 
uh, she's been 84 years old. So it's either she's 84 or if she got married around 14 or so, married seven years, she is about 105 years old. The point is that she, like Simeon, is old. And she gives witness of Jesus. She gives thanks to God and speaks about Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This phrase, redemption of Jerusalem, is much like Simeon's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Jerusalem is just the capital city that refers to the nation as a whole. Now, we we notice all of these parallels. They're both old. They're both devout because Anna is said to be at the temple day and night, worshiping, fasting, and prayer. And even though it's not said explicitly, I think Anna is also filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why she's called a prophetess. And she immediately recognizes Jesus. We see that in verse 38. And she gives thanks to God and speaks of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So why does Luke give us Simeon and Anna, these two elderly, faithful, pious saints? I think it's this. As he's writing He wants his readers to have certainty about what happened. And so he's following Deuteronomy 19.15, which is that testimony isn't valid unless you have two witnesses. And so he has Anna and he has Simeon. But not only that, Luke is writing about this new and glorious work of salvation that has come in the person and work of Jesus. And his readers, he wants his readers to know that the faithful the pious, in the temple, who were waiting. This is how they received Jesus. The Spirit revealed it to them, and they received this new work that Jesus was bringing with joy and worship and humility. That the waiting and anticipation of the Messiah, Anna and Simeon, represent all of the faithful saints that were waiting for God's Messiah to finally come. When would he come? When would he come? And finally he came. And how did they receive him? With rejoicing. The waiting has finally become the reality. Christ has come. Salvation has dawned. Good news is finally broken in. So, So we get two law-abiding parents, two spirit-inspired witnesses, which leads us to the testimony of the one Savior of the world. And the high point or the climax of this passage is what Simeon says about Jesus in verses 27 to 32. And Simeon essentially says, I can now die in peace because I've seen Jesus. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, he says that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. I think what that means is that God's plan is unfolding according to promise and to prophecy so that all the people would be able to look upon it. And so what it's trying to say is that the Christmas story, this birth narrative of Jesus— Luke's been making a point. It's in fulfillment of all these promises, all these prophecies, because it's not by accident that God comes into the world. It's by design. He planned it this way so that we would experience joy. And the most important thing that Simeon says, because much of it is repeated from the Magnificat and Zechariah's prophecy, is this in verse 32. He says, this salvation, this son, 
will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The reason that this good news of great joy will be for all the people is because the Gentiles would now be welcomed in. Now, just think with me how stunning this would have been. Here you have two faithful Jewish parents bringing their Jewish son up into the Jewish temple with the faithful, pious Jewish elderly there receiving him. And it's in this temple, the meeting place of God and man, given to the nation of Israel. And it's in that moment, Simeon says, this child will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And the reason this is such a big deal is because gathered here this morning, we are the fulfillment of that very reality. Last time I checked, most of us were not Jewish. We have been brought in. We have been grafted in to this vine. We have partaken of this good news that is for all the peoples. Because we don't have a Jewish Messiah. We have the Messiah. We don't have a Jewish king. We have the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This good news has gone global. And Simeon is pointing to this reality already. He says, he's going to be a light for the Gentiles. Yes, Israel, it's going to be Israel's glory, but he's going to be a light to the Gentiles. And, and, and we'll see in Acts, uh, we're actually going to preach through Acts in 2021. Lord willing, we'll get through the whole book. But we'll see with even greater clarity that the Gentiles are part of God's plan. The Holy Spirit would fall on the Gentiles. The disciples would say, whoa, is that okay? Uh, but I get Gentiles speaking in tongues and, and the Holy Spirit filled them. And it says in Acts eleven eighteen, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God is doing a new thing in the Lord Jesus Christ, a light of revelation and of glory. Now, Simeon says a number of words to Mary about being a sign that will be opposed and being a sore, a soul-piercing sword. So look with me at verses 33 to 35. Simeon says this to Mary. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Imagine Mary up to this point. Everything you've heard about your newborn baby. She's maybe 14, mostly uneducated, a peasant. And shepherds, complete strangers out of nowhere, have told her, this accompanied the birth of your son. This is what we were told about him. And she's just taking it all in, marveling. But then here come really sober words. A sort of division, a prophecy of division is what Simeon gives Mary. The first image of causing the rising and the falling of many is drawn from Isaiah. Isaiah 8, 14 and 15, or 28, 13 to 16. And we saw this in 1 Peter as well, that Jesus is the cornerstone. And you would either build your life on this cornerstone and become living stones as part of this new glorious temple that this cornerstone was establishing, or you would stumble over this cornerstone and you would fall, or it would even crush you. And so what Simeon is saying that this child, Jesus would come in and there would be only two reactions to him. You're either going to love him and receive him or you're going to reject him. 
And he says again in verse 35, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There's this dividing effect, this revealing effect that Jesus would have. And we see this borne out in his ministry. Some would say, you're completely out of your mind. Eat your body, drink your blood. You're a lunatic. And others come, fall at his knees and say, have mercy on me. You are the Christ. And they worship they worship. Now, the phrase, Simeon gives a really interesting parenthetical phrase, and it says, a word will pierce through, a sword will pierce through your own soul also in verse 35. It strikes a sad and somber note. So what does it refer to? There's a number of options, and I think it's most likely two things, and, and I think it's both of these things. First is that Jesus' ministry would take him away from his family. Jesus would leave home. He would establish his inner circle with his disciples. He wouldn't continue his father's trade. His travels would keep him away from his earthly family. And some of you can resonate because you wish your kids lived nearby so that you could have Sunday dinners together. And it breaks your heart that they live somewhere else. But the second thing is that Jesus' ministry would ultimately result in his crucifixion, which would bring about Mary's greatest heartache. She would bury her own son, and he wouldn't reach his 40th birthday. In his early 30s, Jesus would be crucified. And this sword of sorrow would be driven into Mary. Now, we have two law-abiding parents, two spirit-inspired witnesses leading to the one Savior of the world. And we saw, we see, that Jesus came to usher in a new and glorious work of salvation by Fulfilling the law and shining a light to the Gentiles. So, leads us to the question I want to ask this morning. Why should we have a fresh appreciation for Jesus? Why should we have a fresh appreciation for Jesus? The salvation that Jesus brings is ushering in a completely new era. And I think Luke is very subtly but clearly making that point. He makes a point to stress that Mary and Joseph are obedient to the law and that Jesus is raised according to the law. And then we get Simeon and Anna who are essentially the last of the Old Testament prophets along with John the Baptist. And they are prophesying about the coming of the Christ. So here we get the law and prophets which is shorthand for the whole Old Testament. The law, prophets, and writings, the Psalms. This refers to the entirety of the Old Testament. And so here we have the law and the prophets. Jesus is ushering in a new era and establishing a new covenant and doing away with the old covenant. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the prophets wrote about. That's why later, at the end of Luke, Jesus opened the law and the prophets and the writings and showed those disciples on the road to Emmaus, it was all written about me, and it's now been fulfilled. So Jesus fulfills all of the law and the prophets, and he's ushering in a new era in his life and by his blood. Later in Luke, Jesus says this in Luke sixteen sixteen. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, 
the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Good news of great joy that is for all the people has finally broken in in the person and work of Jesus. And this is stunning. Galatians tells us that we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The reason this is so significant for us is not only because our sins have been forgiven by Jesus' death, but we've received his imputed righteousness given to us. But now Jesus has ushered in a new era where we're not mainly looking to rules and regulations. We're not mainly seeking to work harder, try more, do better so that we can somehow attain our way up to God. We don't bring blood sacrifices. We don't kill any animals on Christmas Day to somehow communicate that we're clean before God. No, we come now to Jesus. What was once the temple, the meeting place of God and man, the holy of holies, where God's presence would dwell, now we don't need the temple. Jesus says, tear down this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. And he was speaking of his own body. We do not sacrifice. We don't need to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. We have the fulfillment of all of the law and prophets in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is glorious good news this morning. And we can cry, Abba, Father. Because what we get when you come to Jesus, it's not rules and regulations, but you get Jesus. The story of redemptive history is that God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And the decisive sign that he used was killing all of the firstborn of Egypt. But Israel was spared. Their firstborns were spared. Why? Because a lamb's sacrifice. The blood was smeared across their doorposts. So they were liberated. But then Israel immediately went wayward. So what did God do? He gave them the law up on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and then spoke the law to Moses. But even as he's giving them the law, his people are going wayward, building a golden calf. So what did God do? He gave them prophets, and then he gave them priests, and then he even gave them kings, King David and King Solomon, so that they would lead his people. But his people continued to go wayward. They would not obey. None of it was good enough. And so what did Jesus, what did God do? He sent Jesus, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And he would be the Lamb of God. And not by killing the firstborn of his enemies this time, but by giving of his own firstborn son to be killed for us. And we would get not only forgiveness of sins, but his perfect righteous life imputed to us. And then, like Simeon and like Anna and like all the ones before, we get the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit so that as all of God's people kept going astray, we now have the Spirit to hold us. We often sing, he will hold me fast. When I'm prone to depart and go away from God and to see all these shiny things and run after them, the Holy Spirit that has been given to us, the very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in us, causing us to follow him. So not only forgiveness of sins, not only imputed righteousness, but now an active Spirit in 
the third person of the Trinity itself, dwelling within us, each one of us this morning, so that we would obey. So the question for us this morning, for you watching at home, if you're hearing this for the hundredth time or the first time, is how will you respond to Jesus and the salvation that he has ushered in? Is he on your bucket list? Seeing and savoring the salvation of God in the Savior, Jesus Christ. The life of Jesus beckons a response this morning. And as we saw, it's going to bring a sword of division. You either receive him and all that he has said and all that he means, or you reject him. And my hope this morning is for anyone watching here this morning or watching from home that you would not reject the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come to usher in a new era, a new covenant in his blood, and you can receive it and even be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you might give testimony and have great joy. Let me end with this story that I hope illustrates everything that I've said up to this point so that we would recognize that we're living in a new era marked by Jesus and the indwelling power of the Spirit. At the end of World War II, the Japanese surrendered on August 15th, 1945. It wasn't until September 2nd that they went on board the USS Missouri and signed the surrender documents. That would be the terms of their surrender. And finally, at that moment, the war ended. A completely new era had begun. Japan and America were no longer at war. And finally, finally, we had peace. Some of you were alive during that time and remember that moment. I won't ask for a show of hands because it will date all of you. But there was one soldier, one Japanese soldier. There was probably a few more, but there was at least one Japanese soldier stationed on a small island in the Philippines, 83 miles, actually 93 miles southwest of Manila by the name of Hiru Anoda. And he didn't believe that the war was over because he was told by his commanding officer, don't ever surrender, don't ever give up. And if you see the leaflets that say the Japanese have surrendered, don't believe them. It's enemy propaganda. And don't ever leave your post until I come to relieve you. And so he was very loyal. And so he remained. He kept fighting a war that had long ceased. He saw the leaflets and he believed it was enemy, enemy propaganda. Kept up fighting the war for another 29 years. A war that had ended. The world had moved on, and he remained on that little island, surviving on bananas and coconuts, hiding from the Filipino villagers that lived on that island, still thinking that he was in the midst of fighting a war. And finally, he was actually declared dead. Uh, a student discovered him and, and told him, the war's over, go home. And he said, no, no, no. I need my commanding officer to come and relieve me. And so they found his commanding officer. He was doing something else at that point, dusted off his uniform, had to come back and relieve him of his post and tell him the war's been over for almost three decades. And finally, he could go home. Hiru didn't know that the war was done and a new era had dawned and that peace had finally arrived. 
And this morning, I want each and every single one of us to know that in Jesus, a new era has dawned. Peace has arrived. And it's characterized not by the Old Testament law, not by the law and the prophets, but it's characterized by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sins and the imputed righteousness of Christ. We now can take hold of peace because Jesus has come. Good news of great joy that will be for all the peoples has come. And so that we can confess Christ has come. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Father, that's our longing this morning, that our hearts would well up with fresh appreciation and worship for Jesus because he's ushered in a new era given us forgiveness of sins, imputed his righteousness to us, and filled us with his spirit even now this morning. So I pray that we would worship in spirit and in truth and declare your greatness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ.